Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Here we are, Here we are again for Here another we session. Of, Here we are again for another session of Baffling Combustions. My name is Sam Truitt. I am Sparrow. And my name is Andrew Kent McCarran. What's your middle name? Kent? Yeah, it's my middle name. K-E-N-T, Kent? That's right. Aristocratic. Oh, All right, Kent. <laughs> Very anglophilic. Thank you. Right. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh-huh. And uh, so for this session, we're going to talk about the nature of the void, V-O-I-D. So been to anything to fill this moment. Yeah, to fill the void. Yeah, I just wanted to say, parroting something I said um, last meeting, and that was the, uh, the, the word entered into my life space as a child becoming cognizant of my parents' banking habits. And I do remember seeing certain checks across which was written the word void. Mm. And I just want to mark for what it's worth, that's where the word entered my life trajectory. I was probably around six or seven becoming aware of things. And I remember that word in conjunction to banking, old-fashioned checks that were void. And you, do you remember like not understanding what it meant? No, I, I had a sense of what it meant, I, I feel. Hmm. That it no Were you longer... attracted to the word self? Were you attracted to the four letter word? Um, you know, it's shape or, you know, because when you're six, your relationship to the nature of a word and letters and stuff is more tactile, maybe, or. Yeah. Has it more resonance? It's a great question. I, I was drawn to it because I like words that begin with V. Yeah, and around, around the time I was into Transformers, and there's this Transformer called Voltron. And also, I was in, interested in this show about aliens called V. Oh, yeah. Lizardian Liz- aliens that come to Earth. And look like human, but they're you know they sometimes their faces get ripped off and they're reptilian. Hmm. Are you familiar with that show from the early to mid eighties? 
Maybe. Sounds familiar. I don't. I don't. I. I haven't watched television since about 1970, so I've pretty much missed everything. Then since then, but my daughter uh, sort of, you know, tricked me into watching. Uh, what is it called? Thirty Rock, in around 2008. So, you know, I started watching stuff on, uh, I still don't watch television per se, but I watch internet shows that are streaming. Mm -hmm. But I still have missed most everything. It sounds familiar. I did actually read the Transformers comic book, which was Marvel, in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. Once I didn't really follow it, but I would sometimes somehow get a copy of it. Well, in terms of the Transformers, I mean, one thing that I would immediately observe is that the author of, you know, that which we call the metamorphosis, you know, which is a transformation, um, um, you know, is Ovid, which is a transliter, you know, trans, you know, move the letters around and you have void. It's an anagram for void. Anagram for Void is Ovid, yeah. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about Devo, Void, uh, which is not Devo, D-I-V-O, which is not really a word. But uh, I guess it's Diov would be backwards, Void. Right. So in terms of Void, it comes from the Latin Vicari. Hmm is an interesting word and it you know the source of a lot of our words you know including vacation um it means to empty Mm. to vacate to leave and its original usage is in relation to you know a place that was equivalent to a kind of waste a deserted place uh, but of course, as we know now, there is no such thing that the web of life penetrates into all spaces. Right. Hmm. On Earth, anyway. I mean, in the moon, you know, I don't know that whatever you mean by the web of life. I mean, I thought you meant like biological life, like there's uh, bacteria everywhere. And mycelium. Mycelium is everywhere. Oh, yeah, but maybe not in Antarctica. There, too, under the snow, under the tundra. Yeah, yeah. speaking of a void, but yeah, probably frozen, uh, waiting to reemerge. Because as in was time Ant- it will. Antarctica at one time was, was warm, was tropical. I don't, I don't know, really. Are there fossils in Antarctica? It's, embarrassing how little and i read a whole like 70 page article about it in the new yorker back when the new yorker would just have like one article a week you know that was eternally long you know it'd be like the talk of the town a few cartoons but the rest would just be you know 70,000 words on um, pumpkins or something And the only thing I remember about Antarctica is it said uh, Antarctica is such an obscure place. No one even knows how to pronounce it correctly. Is it Antarctica or Antarctica? That's like, you know, that's the only whatever 
uh, you know, factoid that I recall that article. As we discussed, you know, Cousin Zaki's sends Odysseus to Antarctica at the end of, you know, his Odyssey, a modern sequel. And uh, Antarctica, you know, is as close to void as, you know, we can come on Earth, perhaps. Yeah. I think in this article also, I kind of vaguely remember they talked about snow blindness, that it's so white in Antarctica that you can like literally go blind just staring out at all that white snow and ice. Wow. So that's like the danger of the void is that it's kind of uh, can be painful, bad for your health, can drive you insane, voidness. Right, like blindness is a is a form of voidness, like not being able to see. Yeah, yeah depending on how you uh, you define voidness, I I think we tend to define the void visually. Of course, in a sense, the blind uh, see more because they're more conscious of touch. So you know, in a sense, they're less in a void than than we are because. Because their other senses perhaps are heightened. I'm not sure. Sure. Yeah. When did you guys come across the word first? <laughs> I would sort of guess, like in junior high school, me and my friend Philip were kind of obsessed with Zen Buddhism. And we would read mostly Zen um, stories, you know, like funny stories about Zen masters and Zen students. I'm just wondering if. Somewhere in there, they they had the concept of the void. Yeah, I wish that I had as, you know, kind of an immediate and poignant um, story as you, Andrew, relative to this word and, you know, recognizing it, you know, and having a, a time and specific kind of moment and interconnectedness. I mean, for me, I... I kind of associate it with uh, Milton, with reading Paradise Lost. Oh yeah, um, yeah, and the and the kind of sense of the of Lucifer, you know, becoming Satan, um, and that sense of the fall into the abyss. You know, the the kind of big um, conceptual horizon that emerges out of trying to reconcile reality with Christianity and um, and also just the mythologies of the Judeo-Christian, I guess principally Christian um, engine, um, you know, in that sense of hell and of a void, of chaos. And, uh, well, yeah, what's the relationship between void and chaos is also an interesting one. Your comment underscores the fact that it tends to have a pretty negative connotation um, within, I think, Judeo-Christian traditions. Mm-hmm. Whereas, if my memory serves correct, in a, more of a Buddhist context, maybe this is a sparrow was getting at his memory of Zen Buddhism, I think it has more of a potentially positive connotation. I was thinking about it in uh, Peter Matheson's travel work, The Snow Leopard from the uh, late 70s. Yeah, he, you know, his wife passes on, and then he, he goes um, with his friend, Peter Schiller, the naturalist. I think that's the guy's name. They go to the Himalayas to try to track the uh, the elusive snow leopard. 
but he's really he's really up there to um, learn more to about, about Tibetan Buddhism mm. and um, to work through the trauma of losing his uh, his wife. Mm. And he describes this experience of sitting on the rocks in the Himalayas as um, leading to this uh, awareness of a void at the center mm. or the source. And he writes about how, like sitting there on these hard rocks, teaches his bones something that his brain could never grasp. Mm. It's in a specific sutra. I think it's the Heart Sutra. Oh, that form is mm. emptiness, and emptiness is form. And this moment in the uh, the Snow Leopard is a very significant one. Although um, he can't like um, maintain the implications of the uh, the vision. As soon right. as he returns, it all kind of dissipates, and he, his rage resumes. You mean like while he's out there in the Himalayas, yeah. he has this kind of ecstatic feeling, but when he returns to real life, yeah, he can't yeah. maintain it. Yeah, there's yeah. just a lot of anger that surprises him when he returns, that he was hoping that that would sort of be it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, back to duality. The... Um, one thing my sense of void closer than anything else, um, you know, and, and as we talked about last time, um, you know, that the apocryphal moment of, you know, a thought is a void. I mean, I, I think of a void as possibility, um, you know, on, on a number of different uh, counts. But, um, you know, if you have a, a, a void, a gap, then there's a possibility. Then there's something to add. Hmm. Um, and also possibility in that kind of moment prior to thought, you know, where a thought can become anything, you know, that sense of um, possibility also. How is a thought a void? Mm -hmm. um, well, that's a good question. I mean, the only way that I can figure out to get to um, answering that question is a little bit roundabout and a little bit of um, kind of poetic um, etymology in the in the nature of oid, O-I-D, which is not, you know, the part of the construction of the word void as we have it, but O-I-D is a Greek um, suffix, you know, or, yeah, that means more or less like. Um, oh, I see. You know, like A. It's a simile. It's a simile structure. Like paranoid <laughs> is like, you know, be, uh, uh, like out of my, out of your mind. Paranoid. Android. Yeah, right. Like a human being. Mongoloid. Perfect. Word yeah, exactly. Is, yeah. Yeah. And oh, so okay. that um, Eidos, um, you know, which where we get the word Eidos or form um, and get the, uh, you know, from the Greek IDN, which means to see. And that's the derivation of idea. Um, huh. Yeah, that's how we get to idea. So, you know. I think a uh, a thought is is a void in that a mm. thought is an idea. It's something that is like something else, mm. but it itself cannot touch it. 
Or in a certain like literal way, the way I would I would could see it as uh, you do one thing, you do another thing. Let's say you're walking along picking cotton from uh, your uh, cotton field, <laughs> and then you stop and think, and then you're not picking cotton while you're thinking. Like a thought kind of is is a sort of blank in between actions, you could say. In that sense, it's a kind of void. If you see from a materialist perspective, uh, a thought is a void, seems to me. It's not a thing. It's not, it's not real. Right. Or it's or, empty, you know, sort of going back to its uh, origin, you know, to empty, to leave, to abandon. It came up medically over the summer when I was having a urinary tract thing. <laughs> and the doctor asked if oh, I yeah? had been able to void the bladder. Oh, really? Yeah. I and said I think so. <laughs> You said your thoughts. That's used. It's used interchangeably for urination and I think for defecation. To void. Mm -hmm. As a verb. It's the only time it's used as a verb. I guess void this check. Would you say that? Go ahead and void this check. I guess that's another verb form. And like the way that a check is void, it can't be used. You can't spend it. Once you, uh, all the urine's out of your bladder, it's gone, vacated, voided. Do you fear the void? Me? What? Yeah. I am terrified of the void. How does it manifest in your life? In my life? Uh, Well, I mean, really what happens with me is, you know, that I get this, what I call the cosmic fear. Have I discussed that here? No, I, I wish you would. Oh, yeah. Like every so often, I pretty much always get it late at night. I'm trying to go to sleep. I go to sleep really late, like at three o'clock or later in the morning. And I'm lying there in bed. And sometimes I just, it's hard to explain, but it's kind of like, I start to think, do I really exist? Is this existence real? Like when I die... I mean, one way to put it very, you know, literally is it's kind of a fear that the whole universe will end except for me. And I'll just be like suspended like the Holy Ghost over the the emptiness of a dead universe and stuck forever in this kind of pseudo existence or non-existent. But it's more like a terror that I don't really exist, that exists that it, that this is all kind of a dream that 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 this reality that i live in that i think is real is it's just one way of looking at it and another way i'm not i'm starting to give it to myself talking about it. and then then what yeah. i do is i i start hitting my face i'll start like punching myself or slapping myself to try to bring myself back. So uh, that leads me to suspect that it might be some kind of out-of-the-body experience. you wake up your wife to explain what's going on, or no? No, she's really used to it. I mean, she usually wakes up while I'm having it, like as soon as I start slapping myself. Or sometimes I'll be like shouting or going like, uh, uh, uh. 
then she'll sort of half wake up, then she'll put her hand on me and she'll say, everything's okay. Then she'll uh-huh. go back to sleep. And, you know, my wife is very literal, like very, it's, it's weird. Like we have kind of like, we're opposite personalities. Like she spends, it's, it's sort of ironic or something in a way. She spends all her time because she's a, you know, very serious Christian scientist. So she spends all this, her time trying to convince herself that the universe is an illusion and uh, the only thing real is God. And I spend all my time trying to convince myself the world isn't an illusion and that the, the reality is really real and I can sort of cling to it, you know, mm-hmm. and it's a real thing and that it's not just a kind of shred. And I think the fact that I spend my days, you know, writing these stupid, you know, pieces of writing on my computer and then doing my yoga and doing my meditation like a, there's nothing grounding in what I do, you know. Yeah. So is your fear that you feel or you there there's the tingling sensation at the edge of it all that you may just be living out an algorithm? <laughs> I mean, one way to look at it is I used to get this when I used to read really a lot of comic books when I was a teenager. I would read three comic books and then suddenly I'd get some version of the cosmic fear that was not exactly like that I am a comic book character like Archie and Jughead, but something close to that, like a kind of an awareness that this reality, you know, like Archie doesn't know he's in a comic book and and that I am like in some, you know, narrative that I think is real, but it's really as insubstantial and thin as a comic book page something like that would be a way to put it one time i i got it i ran into my father's living room my living the living room where my dad was sitting on his uh armchair and i jumped into his lap (laughs) i was maybe 17 19 and my father looked at me and said are you doing drugs (laughs) that it all started with my bad LSD trip in 1971. That is quite possible that that launched me into a lifetime of, you know, uh, what is it called? Um, You know, where you separate from yourself. Dissociation. Uh, Dissociation, yeah. If we are just living out an algorithm, it seems to me that the void or something in the nature of the void is kind of the antidote to that. That the void is outside of the algorithm, if I may say, you know, out of a sort of biochemical, you know, um, recipe. I want to kind of go back to this thing that I felt I, I didn't quite articulate well, and, I, and I'm not sure I can now. But I, I feel, you know, when I say a thought is a void, on one hand, I could say, oh, you know, I think that was a misrepresentation, that it's actually that state prior to thought that's the void. But I also feel that a thought is a void, that a thought is a semblance. Um, it's kind of a shadow and that there there is an aspect in the nature of thought of what is the Latin phrase uh, you know, if the if um, void and uh, an abyss have a similar taste, you know, abysum vocat abyssus. 
you know, the idea that the abyss calls the abyss. Yeah, and I and I still I feel I still haven't quite said what I feel. What is that a quote? Because abyssum. You know, I, I think that it might be might have um like be from Saint Paul or something like that. Is there? <laughs> I think it might have a um New Testament ring to it. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah, it's very interesting. It sounds a little bit like Plato's cave, where Plato said, you know, it's like we're looking at shadows on a wall in this world. And then it sounds, you know, that there's a real world, that this world is a kind of dim reflection of. And then if you think about the shadows, that's like a reflection of a reflection I don't know. It sounds maybe that's what you're talking about, the kind of insubstantiality compared to some true reality. The thought is a kind of a, like a Xerox of a Xerox of reality. Is that what mm-hmm. you're saying? <laughs> yeah, but yeah. more important, I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly, except I would also go back to just this sense of the void as being the antidote to the algorithm. That the void is kind that of... Our, are you the void? Yeah, that our apprehension of the void, of emptiness, is that which is beyond the algorithm, beyond the biochemical firings and, you know, just um, living out a recipe. I like that. Hmm. Isn't that the, uh, isn't the void a big part of Buddhism and moving into the nothingness? I think that emptiness, at least in Zen, I think the the term they use is emptiness, which I think is not. I don't see it as the same as the void. Ah. You know, I'm I'm not sure. Jewish friends of mine refer to the void. I've noticed they'll be like to the void. Oh yeah. Oh, nice. I don't know. I've just maybe it's just random. Maybe uh, the origin point is not. Jewish American life, but I have two Jewish identified friends who say that frequently whenever they drink. Oh, they'll raise a glass and say to the void, or or they'll say, "Here's the bread of affliction." <laughs> I see. Well, I mean, the Bible, the the Jewish Bible, doesn't it begin with the void? Doesn't it say in everything Genesis? Doesn't it say something? And everything was void and without form. And um, and then God came, spirit. But, you know, I think it's like, I think what's the beginning of Genesis is something like, God said, let there be light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first line. And the world was void and without form. I think that's the second line. So, I mean, it could be there's something in Judaism of this kind of, what's the word, duality between the void and and God, that they're almost a kind of that they're both like a yin and yang, really kind of that that they're both necessary in a way. And it could sometimes I think that a lot of Jewish culture sort of unknowingly comes out of the Jewish theology. It's something I've kind of thought about. I found the translation. Do you want me to read it? Yeah. What is this? The King James. Um, this one is the uh, NRSV. What is that called? What does that mean? The new revised standard version, I think. That, you like that version? Um, not really. Um, I use the Harper Collins Study Bible or the King James Bible. 
Mm-hmm. But this is one that came up online. Okay, sure. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Mm, well read. Thank you. Yeah. Well read. I thought the the latter parts were better, and I think maybe, um, you know, I, I felt the first couple lines were kind of chunkily translated. I thought the insertion of when, like the was time, that was striking as being kind of a little off key. Um, isn't there an insertion of time, W-H-E-N, there, Andrew? Yes, there is. Yeah, which is not in the King James, I don't think. Yeah, that's a, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe there's some, uh, you know, support for that in the text. I, I wish I knew. I mean, that yeah, whole- I feel it's a little sinister. I feel like the uh, snake <laughs> entered the garden a little early there. <laughs> and you don't trust that when. Yeah, I don't trust it either, I must say. But uh, that whole uh, the syntax, the earth was void and without form. Is that right? Something like that. Um, let me call it back up. Yeah, I think that was it. Which is really weird, right? It's like saying, it's like saying she's not there. It's like that zombie song. The earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. The earth was a formless void, yeah. So how could it be the earth <laughs> you know, if it was a formless void? How can something be a void and also a thing that has a name, you know? Do you know what's in- interesting or sort of, um, you know, going backwards into that proposition is I think that it's from St. Augustine, although I'm not sure. Um, and it goes something like, if God were to withdraw, <laughs> if God were to, or not, let, let me say it again. If God were to withdraw his creative force from the things that he has created, all would return to its state or nothingness. Hmm. This is a quote from Augustine. I think I think from Augustine, but I'm I'm not sure. And uh, um, yeah, I guess it's this idea, like at, at this moment, if that which is being identified as God were to maybe close his eyes or her eyes or its eyes, close its eyes, or in some way withdraw that creative force, everything would immediately just return to uh, to that from which it came, or nothingness. Right, that God kind of wills the universe into existence at every moment. Yeah, and also I think, um, you know, isn't there the Vedic kind of myth of the uh, Maya, that the universe is the play of the divine? I mean, I think what they say in Ananda Marga, there's kind of like a, there's Purusha and Prakriti, there's uh, consciousness and energy, which you could call energy, 
And traditionally, Purusha consciousness is male, depicted as male. Prakriti or energy or matter is depicted as female. And they're sort of one entity. They're kind of like, I think at one point, my guru says they're like two sides of a piece of paper. So they're, they're inextricably combined. It's a little bit like saying nirvana is samsara. I think it's a, is, uh, ignorance kind of. <laughs> yeah, I think the Tibetan term is yab yum. Oh, um, yeah, the male and female energies in coitus, you know, in union. Hmm. Yeah, and they kind of, and they kind of prevent, but I don't know if there is really a void in, as I understand, uh, whatever yogic thought, there's always consciousness. There's like the supreme consciousness is always there. So what we call God is always present. But I guess I guess what St. Augustine is saying is that that the universe, the physical universe would dissolve and there would only be God if God. But the, but the way you the way. Oh, wow, that's interesting. It sounded like uh, sounded like they would just descend into chaos. It sounds like that. Yeah, kind of, that like it sounds weather. like more of that patriarchal kind of can't if you ask me. Or just, yeah, the Western religion has a kind of terror of chaos. And I think the Eastern religion kind of sees chaos as part of the uh, Leela, the dance of the divine dance, Krishna's dance. Krishna uh, dances and earthquakes go off and volcanoes erupt and wars happen, millions of people die. And that's all the the sort of joyful dance of Krishna. It's not, you know, the evil workings of the devil. <laughs> Circling back to that sense of um, figures of the yab-yum or, you know, the union of the male and female energies, is there a polite word that I can use for, you know, for our uh, Pacifica radio for orgasm? Or can one say orgasm? Yeah, I think orgasm can be said. You can say okay. At any rate, the state of orgasm, does that have a, a taste of void to it? Hmm. I mean, uh, physiologically, since we've discussed voiding the bladder, voiding the um, lower intestine, um, you know, there is also a sense of voiding in terms of um, ejaculation. Can I say this stuff on the radio? Is this weird? I think that's all acceptable. From a tantric perspective, aren't you also voiding something of your essential energy? And at that moment, isn't there? Oh, I see what you mean. Isn't there some sort of imperative at times to keep all of that inside of you cycling around? Hmm. Or not, yes. not ejaculating, right? You know, learning how to do that. Right. I think that's the idea. You're supposed to transform it into uh, this kind of mystic fluid that is called hmm, somadara, I think is the word. Somadara. Transparent yeah, Ara. Dahara. It collects at the fontanel. And um, sometimes you can reach up and touch the crown of your head where your fontanel resides. 
and you feel like a slight moisture, like a kind of milky um, extrusion, which is um, one of the manifestations of the success of that practice. Yeah. Up of your head. Um, yeah, there was this meditation teacher who was in New York, this guy named Alan Finger, who's the one time I was at one of his events, he was talking about how the top of his head was soft. Oh, yeah, that's the chakra. The Sahasrara chakra is the is the top of the head where your like soul leaves your body at death, I think, and merges with the universe if you're in the right condition. You know, it's maybe when you are finishing all your incarnations, your thousands and thousands of incarnations, and through that Sahasrara chakra you emerge. Anyway, I think I've heard this. But I mean, we're cir circling back. Is the state of orgasm is part of the um, attraction of that experience that one has a like a, a glimpse or not even a glimpse, a um, you know, just a little spark of the of touching the void. Well, this is a question. Isn't that why the Elizabethans called it dying? Oh yeah, the little death, right? Death or the French, right? The little death. Also, you oh. kind of fall asleep sometimes. But I, I don't think I've ever really um, been able to conceptualize it. why it would be referred to as dying, other than just a euphemism. Is oh. is that descriptive of the experience for people? I mean, I don't entirely. I've never entirely known what to do with that, but I've been aware of it for half my life. <laughs> yeah. Well, necessarily, death is a an experience of the void. I mean, as as far as the horizon of human consciousness, normative human consciousness can uh, measure. Yeah. No, I mean, I think if you're a believer, if you have faith, then I don't think you see it as the void. I think you see yourself as you know melding into the arms of the divine. I mean. That's what I would guess. And for that matter, you could see orgasm. Uh, I went through a period when I was like first masturbating. I was a very late masturbator. And I would like imagine I was having sex with God. This is like when I was in my 20s. I don't, you know, I was trying to like use masturbation as a spiritual practice and to sort of use that void experience, if that's what you want to call it, Sam, as. Uh -huh of a fulfillment you know i mean yes of course you could see it as a void i think you know anything any ultimate experience has a kind of void like nature and also any anything that's very full is also kind of empty in a certain sense i mean i think you know any ultimate in a way success you know because i'm obsessively reading about the beatles and, you know, the Beatles had this sort of hyper success. And I think they experienced this sort of void, the, the void of sort of going off the charts, kind of literally and figuratively, just becoming so famous that in a sense you were, you sort of almost ceased to exist, kind of. It, it's, uh, maybe being very rich is like that too. That any kind of fulfillment we had this my wife and I had this couples therapist and I was telling him that I was getting famous 
And he, uh, you know, at first he sort of smiled and then he looked very grave and he said, uh, success is always a crisis. Ha <laughs> 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 For that, like, vividly. And, you know. That's the, very young again. Yeah, maybe that's what he was. He was the, our imago therapist. That's mm. what this imago therapy that this guy, Harville Hendricks, invented. Did you like the uh, therapy? Well, did I? Yeah, I like therapy. I kind of, I had one really terrible therapist who kind of hated me, and eventually perhaps I hated him. I didn't more, I just feared him. But he was very young and had no idea what he was doing and was sort of learning. But in general, I just like therapy. I like, you know, like I like eating. I like therapy. It's just fun for me. Is there a void in your life if there is no therapy? Well, there is now since I'm not in therapy for decades. Yeah, but, I'm uh, nor am I. Are well, you? unless you count, you know, my wife and I do this imago therapy and we occasionally uh, do this kind of mirroring technique, which is essentially the whole therapy. And so we are, in a certain literal sense, each other's therapists. So in, the, in that way, I'm, you know, unless this is therapy, I feel like I... I tend to treat friendships as as a therapy, and I think I treat this podcast as therapy. You know, except for that, yeah, I'm not in therapy. I'm a little afraid to be in therapy, like I'm afraid of the void. Sam, do you fear the void in your life? Does it manifest? I mean, it's a... Um, I think it's a concept that is best it's a, it's, it's experiential. Yeah, yeah, for me, I mean, I find the void to be very compelling. Um, I feel it, it really calls. Um, yeah. I think that it is the place of the garden is um, the landscape of the garden. One of its dimensions is void like, um, and, you know, I like to spend time in the garden for sure. Um, you know, the void is that which draws out of us reflections of reality. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I feel, yeah, although as a word, it's not, it's not vocabulary that I use too much, but there is one phrase that's really kind of, um, that I that I feel a uh, resonance with, and I'll and I'll read you the phrase, okay? And that is the void at the heart of the image. Hmm. The void at the heart of the image. Wow, that's a that's a line from something. Um, you know, I um I was interested in the in the in the phrase, and I put it into the search engine, and it there are only a a handful of instances, only two or three. Um, so I'm not sure what the source is, um, but there is a source. I'm pretty sure I picked it up someplace. And uh, I mean, I understand it. I mean, my idea is that in any photograph, um, death is the central figure. Hmm. You know, particularly photographs of people. I mean, I don't mean to be spooky or, uh, you know, pessimistic. Um, 
but time, you know, just the nature of time that's captured in a photograph. I don't know. That's the, that's my association. I'm not sure I can articulate it rationally, perhaps. Mm. Yeah, I'm reading this book by uh, Marat Namet Najat, who's kind of a friend of mine, on photography. It's a kind of a long essay he wrote years ago that was just republished as a little booklet. And he seems to be saying something like that, too. Among other things, it's one of the things that kind of comes up when you talk about photographs. It, it has something to do with time. It sort of stops time in some way that a painting doesn't. Makes you aware of, of the kind of march of history somehow. Hmm. I mean, it makes me think about Joan Didion, who just died. And, you know, then somebody dies and they put their photograph in the New York Times and you, know, you look at their photograph and they're so young or sometimes there's two photographs. They're so young and then they're so old. And, you know, that sort of hopefulness in the face of a young, famous person. I guess I was just looking at some tiny photograph of Joan Didion and I was thinking I once saw her read at the 42nd Street Library. And I went up to her afterwards and I said, I think you're the best writer in America. And she kind of looked at me startled. And then I tried to get her to write for this magazine that my meditation group puts out called Cosmic Society, that I was some kind of roving editor. I gave her a copy of Cosmic Society and invited her to write for it. This like weird magazine put out in Calcutta. But I do remember the kind of startled look, maybe partly because I'm a weird-looking person, you know, hippie-ish-looking person, but the startled look when I told her she was the greatest writer in America, which at that time I kind of believed. Do you think it meant a lot to her? Do you think she was threatened by it? Do you, do you I think thought was, you were playing with her? Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I think she was flattered by it but maybe also a little suspicious. You could kind of feel all the intelligence in her, you know, I mean, I think as a writer, she's really intelligent and kind of weighing everything and then weighing the opposite of everything. She yeah. might have been sizing you up as a big suck-up, Sparrow. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny moment, you know, you've just given a talk, library, you're a little nervous, you don't know what's going to happen. And you get the feeling she's kind of a private person, even though she was a, a reporter, journalist. You know, she seemed like someone who wasn't used to being out in the world giving lectures. And here comes this person up to her. And uh, she just uh, didn't know what to think, I think. But I think she felt right that on. I was here, you know. Yeah. I think that the photograph, uh, is related to death because it freezes time. It's the end of time. Hmm. In other words, that moment of time is now marked as having ended. And that's the nature of death. Hmm. It's kind of a little death in a way. You shoot the person <laughs> and the person stops moving in your photograph. It's like mm -hmm. they're, away. they're just sort of a corpse. They're just a body. And real people are always moving, they're breathing, whereas people in a photograph are, they don't move, 
like a dead person doesn't move. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways, but just you look at a photograph and you're sort of aware, well, this person was once young, now they're older. Person's always older. You meet a famous person, they're always older than you expect them to be because you're used to their photographs from the past. <laughs> also, they retouch their photograph. You know, it's complicated, but, you know, you sort of, people put in younger photographs than they really are on the back of their books. So you meet the real person and they're like, wow, they're so old. Mick Jack. <laughs> That's how I felt when I met um, Al Pacino. Oh, really? Yeah. He seemed really old. Well, old, but also vital. Uh -huh. Older than he looked in Scarface. Yes. that You you saw Scarface. I did. Is that right? I don't really remember it that well. I, did, I remember, like, my mother being really against it. Uh -huh. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Particularly for you to watch. Yeah, I had seen some of it. I, you know, some cousin showed it to me was... Had you know upset her? There was I remember there was some conversation about it. And you were like twelve. You were young. Yeah, something like that. Thirteen. Oh, it's too violent. It's rated X. Is it rated X? I think it was uncut because of all of coke and violence. You know. I'm not sure it was rated X though. I th oh. that sounds wrong to me. Maybe I'm thinking about RoboCop. RoboCop was rated X. I never saw RoboCop. But I did see Scarface because my friend Marks sat me down. He thought it was a great movie and I had to see the whole thing. I thought it was kind of a great bad movie. You know, it seemed ridiculous, sort of over the top. You know, it's I mean, I guess I thought it was sort of decadent. I think I'm very old fashioned about movies. I kind of like it's based on some movie from the 30s. You know, it's a remake, I think, of one of those original gangster movies. And I guess. You know, I have a sort of conventional cinephile view that the that original movie, which I've never seen, is a classic. And this 80s glitzy, you know, ridiculously extreme disco version of it is kind of a late sort of, you know, a lower register of it. That's, you know, I never I never made that connection. I mean, there was the Edward something Robinson yeah. Uh, Scarface was that the uh, the original, and this was a remake. I wasn't aware of that. Resituated, you know, with a Cuban refugee from the Marielle Beach um, launches in the eighties, right? Yeah, and you know that's another thing. Like you couldn't make that movie now with an Italian American with this ridiculous, you know, Cuban accent pretending to be Cuban and acting like a maniac, you know. Although I was thinking of that movie when uh, when Trump, you know, when the when Trump was in office and he was about to leave, he'd lost the election and I thought I think I wrote, maybe wrote this on Twitter. He's going to go down like Scarface. He's going to be, you know, with a submachine gun in the uh, White House, you know, saying you're not going to take me alive, you blankety blankers, you know. And I was kind of right. <laughs> he was sort of pulled out of there, I guess, right? Pulled out of the White House in the middle of the night. I think he didn't um, he didn't welcome in the Bidens, which I think every president has done in history. I don't know, something like that. Can I mention this book of poems? Oh, yeah. It's a book called um, Tell Me by Kim Adonisio. 
Adonisio? Uh, Does this name sound familiar? Yeah, can't place it, but I've heard the name, yeah. And um, they're, they're, they're poems that uh, have the void everywhere. And um, they're poems about the drinking life. Huh. There, there are a lot of poems about bars and affairs and one-night stands and last calls, but there's also a spiritual quality to them, too. They, they have a yearn. Some of the poems have a very nice yearning to them and manage to engage experience in a meaningful way. But um, she, she always seems to be drinking in response to what, what I think of as the void. Do you want to hear one of the poems? Yeah. That's yeah. called Fair. God, cool. it's sexual. Opening a beer when you swore you wouldn't drink tonight. Taking the first deep gulp, the foam backing up in the long amber neck. The Pacifico bottle, as you set it on the counter, the head spilling over, so you bend to fit your mouth against the cold lip and drink. Because what you are, aren't you, is a drinker, maybe not a lush, not an alcoholic, not yet anyway, but don't you want a glass of something most nights? Don't you need the gesture of reaching for it, raising it high and swallowing down and savoring the sweetness or the scalding, knowing you're going to give yourself to it like a lover, whether or not he fills up the leaky balloon of your heart? Don't you believe in trying to fill it, no matter what the odds? Don't you believe it still might happen? Aren't you that kind of woman? I don't really like that poem that much, but some of the um, images and poems are okay. Huh. But I like that. But there's a heavy... Yeah, I was sitting right beside her. I thought that was good news. You like that one? Yeah. There's a heaviness. There's a, there's a fear associated with... Well, there's some sort of relationship between drinking, filling up, in the void, the emptiness, in the poems. It's like uh, a causal thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I felt so. So it's it. more gestural than because the one thing I thought was missing was the word void. So she does, does she use that vocabulary? Mm-hmm. She, you know. she didn't use that word, but uh-huh. the images suggest that word concept for me. Many of them. I get, for me, the void is like this cosmic loneliness i think of mm. green plains of new mexico i guess moments where i don't feel like anything's meaningful and everything flattens out and there's a i guess a, a terror of sorts or experience of overwhelm mm. i usually try to run from it or fill it up with language or touch or something mm. i yeah. don't like it mm. But maybe on some level you respect it. It's definitely there, yeah. How's it associated with loneliness? It's a good question. When I feel the void, I guess I usually feel when I'm on my own. Mm. It's a good question. I don't, yeah, I, I don't know. But I, I do have an association with loneliness. Yeah. yeah, me too. When I was a kid, we used to come up here to Woodstock, places like around where I live now. And there was one time, because I grew up in Manhattan in a housing project, so I I was not around silence, you know, and wasn't really, didn't really experience silence. And one time I I thought to myself, I was in Woodstock with my family and we maybe we had just gotten there. For some reason, everyone was quiet. And I Felt like I was you know, maybe eight years old, ten years old. And for the first time in my life, I heard absolute silence. 
And then I thought, now I'm going to die. That <laughs> was like my thought, like, like once, you know, like, like in the Bible where it says, no, God says, no one sees my face and lives. I, uh, I thought now that I've heard silence, I'm just going to be struck, struck a dead by the, by the cosmos, but it didn't happen. <laughs> did, you enjoy, did you enjoy those trips with your family growing up when you would go to a cabin? I didn't really, I don't think I really enjoyed my family very much. I don't, I don't remember actually enjoying, I mean, I didn't, uh, it's like the food I ate when I was a kid. I was talking with my sister the other day. We were talking about food we ate as a kid and I didn't really like much of it. Maybe right. 90% of the food I liked, I, I ate, I didn't like. And I think maybe 95% of the time I spent with my family, I didn't enjoy. But I didn't know that I didn't enjoy it. I didn't know that I didn't like meatloaf. <laughs> you know that you, when you when that's what you eat. You know, as a kid, there's a vague feeling like maybe I don't like this, but you really are not conscious of it. Yeah, I don't know. My family was kind of oppressive. I found them oppressive from a very early age, I think. But I was unconscious of it. Pharaoh, did you avoid them? Huh. I did. Yeah. I went, once I was old enough to, it became kind of an issue. Though, like the one time my dad hit me, I think was, you know, I would go out and play punch ball and walk around with my friends and I would procrastinate coming home as long as possible. And sometimes, you know, I'd promise to be home at five. I mean, I was a kid, but, and then I would get home at six or seven. My mother would call the cops, the, uh, the housing cops, I think, because I lived in a housing project. They had their own cops, you know. Maybe sometimes she called the real cops. So, yeah, I would avoid them as much as possible, actually. I would try to do anything. Maybe that's why I stay up till three in the morning. Maybe I'm still avoiding them in some way. Your dad slapped you when you were late once? Pretty hard. You know, because I came home late from something. I'd done it a lot. You know, I don't exact. I can understand why he did it, you know. Are you shocked? Yeah, I can still feel the shock. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, it was shocking. And he immediately apologized to me. And I, it may have been the only time he ever apologized. Well, in recent years, actually, he's apologized to me occasionally. But, I mean, in my youth, it might have been the only time he apologized. I mean, he was shaken by it. You know, it, it was not the, you know, he's a Jew. It, it wasn't It wasn't the person he thought of himself as being. But yeah, I avoided them. You know, I just did anything I could to stay away from them. I didn't like being around them. They didn't like me very much. I didn't think, I didn't feel that they liked me. So why should I like them? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you were, rim, you know, encircled by void. Yeah, there was. Well, I mean, it's funny because like, you know, when you live in a housing project or anyway, when I did, it was kind of like in my little apartment was a kind of void. But then outside was this whole exciting, complex world of friendships, relationships, sports. I played a vast amount of sports, even though I had no talent at it. Everybody did. And, um, you know, it, the world outside was not a void. The world inside was a void. I mean, the, the apartment inside the building, inside my apartment was a void. Outside was the world is very exciting. That's part of the reason I didn't want to come home. 
Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.